You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 17th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. Do Iran's ongoing protests have the makings of Iran's next revolution? Can Europe hold the line against Russia during a difficult winter? And has the UK's government reached the in-office-but-not-in-power stage of political decline? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests, Tessa Shishkovitz and Yossi Mekelberg, will discuss all the day's big stories. Plus, we'll hear from Yulia Mendel, former press secretary of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, about her new memoir recalling her time working for an unlikely but effective war leader. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined in the studio today by Tessa Shishkovitz, UK correspondent for Profile magazine, and by Yossi Meckelberg, associate fellow with the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House and lecturer at the University of Roehampton, and I think owner of the longest job description of any of our regular <laughs> daily panellists. Your business cards must be the size of dinner plates at this point. No, it's double-sided. Oh, I see. Cunning, <laughs> cunning, cunning. Saving paper, saving paper. I like it. Um, Tessie, you have, as I understand it, recently been consuming art. Yes, it's very difficult in middle of October in London not to be tossing around yourself uh, between the tents uh, in Regent's Park at the Freeze Art Fair last week. But also, every gallery and every museum puts on their best shows of the years during this period, and so I enjoyed that quite a bit. Did you pick up a Picasso or anything at Freeze? God, yeah, I did. And they <laughs> threw me out of the tent afterwards because you're not allowed to touch them. Indeed not. Um, are there any other shows other than Freeze, which is now over, that you would recommend? Absolutely. I would go... Um, to William Kentridge in the Royal Academy of Arts. He's a South African artist, very political show, so it's befitting for this program. Uh, And he's wonderful. I mean, he's an artist who stayed in South Africa for all those years and did wonderful, wonderful videos. But you need like two hours minimum for this exhibition, so take your time. Yossi, have you been doing anything at all cultured recently or or, 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 or not? Come on. This can be a very tricky question. It can also be a very broad one. I mean, have you watched anything on television? Yeah, well, I do. Help us out here. I must admit, you know, with the academic year started less, so I need to actually contact Tessa to recommend me where I should go. But during a summer holiday in Portugal, we actually went to quite a few exhibitions in Lisbon and other places, which was actually nice to see different types of art. So this was interesting. I think that's what tourists do, so it was great actually to experience it. Well, let's start today's show properly in Iran, and it can only be hoped that most of us, if we found ourselves in the position of accusing Saudi actual Arabia of fomenting liberal subversion, would have friends who might suggest we take a holiday or lay off the source during the week. Iran, it seems, lacks such steadying input. Hossein Salami, commander-in-chief of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, has levelled 
precisely this accusation at Riyadh, accusing Saudi media of egging on the ongoing protests occasioned by the death last month of a young woman in the custody of the grown men who the Iranian state pays to pester women about their scarves. Um, Tessa, does this sound like the rhetoric of a regime which is actually losing control of the situation? Because this this is quite mad. I mean, it, it is one thing for Iran to accuse foreign powers of meddling in its domestic politics. It does that all the time, and in fairness, not always without reason. But accusing Saudi Arabia of trying to stir up a feminist insurrection is a bit of a reach, isn't it? Well, there's no end for uh, authoritarian regimes to sound mad, and it doesn't mean that they fall tomorrow. I mean, I think for the first time in a long time, we all watch these uh, demonstrations in Iran, and we think maybe this is the beginning of the end of this particular stretch of 40 years of of disastrous reign and especially oppression of women and we we wish them very well but it's very difficult to say if uh, this can succeed and will not end uh, in prison for most of the people demonstrating now. You'll see a couple of things have been brought to mind by these events. Obviously, there's been previous Iranian protests over the last 40 years, which have occasionally acquired a certain momentum before being, well, absolutely brutally repressed. And the the converse, I guess, is the example of the Arab Spring, which started out looking like really nothing very much, a sort of protest over the licensing of vegetable stands in a small town in Tunisia, um, and ended up roaring across the Middle East with consequences we are yet to fully appreciate. On that spectrum, where do you think what we're seeing in Iran lurks? I think as all revolution, the Iran out of steam at one point or another. We can't exactly foresee what is the point in history they run out of steam, but they're running out of steam. And I think in this, of course, uh, accusing Saudi Arabia, the United States, I'm sure there is somewhere to uh, blaming Israel for that. It's all very well. I, I, I just assume that was taken as red. <laughs> yeah. Big Saturn, small Saturn, it's, it's, it's all there on the menu. However, the, there are underlying problems in Iran. A, the revolution never started with the extremists or with the religion we die at all. It started with liberals. Mm. It's as in all stages of revolution, it comes to the point that the extremists took over. And they managed because they're more cohesive, they have a current ideology, and they have the power. And they are not sto- they're stopping in nothing in oppressing the people. You mentioned 2009, it was oppressed by the Basijis, and then 2018. At certain point, my view is you can't stop millions of people walking in the street and taking over any government. There is no government in the world that can kill mm. millions in the streets. So it's really a balance of power, how many people are ready to sacrifice. And again, uh, we talked earlier about that. You know, whether you are ready to be there in the front line when you are shot by the police, you come to a point that you say, i rather die there is uh, during a demonstration that have another 40, 50 years on this oppression, especially for women. That's, I think, say, say, what they say is enough, enough. The question now, what is missing in what we see right now is, is, is an organic leadership. Mm. And that will be interesting to see if any leadership will emerge among them beyond what we see in the demonstration and more and more women, and not only women, other disenchanted 
groups within the Iranian society is going to join them. That will be the test. A test of perseverance, how long they are going to stay there and how much casualty they are ready to take, which is obviously very sad. Uh, Tessa, you made the point there about the apparent madness of this and other authoritarian regimes. Do we see an illustration of that in their very reluctance to even talk about what the protesters want, to offer even self-interested concessions that might let the steam out of this? Because if, if you were thinking that what the Iranian regime is really interested in is preserving the Iranian regime, is it weird that they're not thinking, well, is there some sort of bone we can throw the protesters that will make it look as if, look, we hear you, we're paying attention and we'll get everybody off the streets? They are maintaining an extremely hard line. Well, I've never seen the Iranian leadership being very good in negotiating with especially the female part mm. of the population. And the the hijab is, is such a central also thing of uh, women having to be somehow marked also as not full members of the society and having to wear uh, scarves in public. And it would be very difficult to find a compromise in this particular particular thing and if you see that students female students pupils you know 10 year olds go and take it off in the classroom there's a really a very explosive moment in it where it's an all or nothing approach for these girls and women and maybe that's what this regime fears most you know angry women are not something you can often <laughs> compromise with easily you see is, is there a difficulty here though in I mean, it's and it's not just about Iran. It's a fairly eternal one. If you're trying to find a way to reason or reason with or even understand people who are basically crazed ideologues uh, and you are not yourself a crazed ideologue, it's quite difficult, isn't it? Because, I mean, I've been in the position, as I'm sure we all have as journalists at various points, of having some sort of a conversation with somebody who is a crazed ideologue. And I don't know about you, but I always find there's always a part of me that just wants to say, come on, seriously, you don't really believe any of this, do you? Come, I mean, who would? But they do. Well, I think part of it they believe in, some of them believe in that, and some of them know that if they stop believing in that, they're losing power. So they have to believe in that. This is this is Upton Sinclair's line that it's very hard to get someone to understand something when their position depends on them not understanding it. Exactly. So, and this is the position they are. Now, the, those protests are also the hypocrisy. In northern Tehran, many people have fantastic parties without all of this hijab, and they're living very nice life, especially mm. those who are close to the regime. So they see the hypocrisy, the economic hardships the oppression, and comes a point, again, in a tipping point, and then the question if they are ready to do that. I think there is also now a combination after the election for the presidents last year, is that sometimes, because it's not, a, obviously, it's not a democracy, but it's more pluralistic than we sometimes give credit to Iran. Between the spiritual leader, the presidency, the majlis, then you have the revolutionary guard. There are power struggles among themselves. Now, when you have a president that is more like Rouhani, for instance, or Afsanjani, or Hatami, that are more pragmatic. I'm, I'm avoiding the word moderate. It's a relative like, term. Yeah. So they balance the spiritual, whether it's Khomeini or Khamenei, there were only two. Mm. When you have someone like Raisi, that is extreme as the spirit. There is no balancing act there. So they probably closing rank. You know, the women tell us what to do. No, we are not going to do that. We'll use more power instead of actually sitting back and trying to make some concession. And that's actually can bring to a worse situation for them and bring them down. But we can't be sure about it.
Well, we will continue to follow that story, but let's now look at Ukraine. At least eight people have been killed today in Kiev and Sumy by what appears to have been a wave of kamikaze drones launched by Russia, specifically by what appears to have been the Iranian-built Shahid-136 drone. At least two parties to the presently semi-dormant Iran nuclear deal, the UK and France, have declared that they believe that Iran's tooling up of Russia is in breach of the terms of the deal, which contains provisions banning Iran from exporting some missile technology. Iran, as it so very often does, denies everything. Um, Tessa, what we're talking about here is the practicalities of Europe's support for Ukraine over what is likely to be a difficult and expensive winter. But is this right there? And I'm also desperately trying to seamlessly link the first item of today's show to the second one. But but flagging the nuclear deal in order to scare Iran off, is, is that is that going to work? I think actually it's fair game to uh, scare people a little bit around with diplomatic means since the other side usually sort of kills people if if they only take off their scarves in the street or if they maintain that they have a nationality of their own and the right to self-determination like the Ukrainians. So I think it everyone is fighting at the moment with uh, all sorts of means in order to help, for example, the Ukrainian population to defend itself from Russian aggression. And the Europeans have very different positions on this, and they have still, so far, kept unity in a diplomatic sense together, not to fall apart and not sound like a, like a group of states that you can... Um, sort of divide over over uh, the propaganda war and uh, that uh, Putin likes to play. So in that sense, I think so far we're we're, we're not doing as badly as everyone expected we would in t- in European politics terms. Um, Yossi, more concretely, we have this newly announced EU military assistance mission for Ukraine. I'm not sure about the acronym UMAM. But I think we're, we're, we're stuck with it. Um, this, this will train around 15,000 Ukrainian soldiers uh, on EU soil. And this will happen soon. They are trying to prepare the Ukrainian army as best they can for the coming winter. Is, is this, in fact, overdue, do you think? I think, yes. If I may, to make just point about the Iran deal. Please. Because I think it's nearly dead anyway. And it had its moment that we thought a few months ago that you'd be signed. Bear in mind, we are not even sure that the Democrats would win the midterms. And if Republicans are say, taking the House, I'm not so sure there is support this in, even in the United States. And Biden might be a lame duck. I mean, even more lame duck mm. than, than he is already. So with all the goodwill by, by uh, the European uh, Union, I don't think it's, it's very feasible to, to sign it anyway. So that might be And I think that's one of the reasons that... Iran is looking for allies elsewhere. I think they're making mistakes where they're looking for these allies, but that's a different matter altogether. As far as the, the, the new assistant mission with the strange name, as all acronyms are, yes, I think we should see more presence in Europe. Now, there is again the, the delicate situation. Ukraine applied to become part of NATO. Obviously, NATO is not that keen in the middle of a war to add another one, then commit themselves, commit itself to fight on behalf of Ukraine. But it already does, in one way or another, fights on behalf of Ukraine, very much deeply involved. It's just you don't have soldiers, but you have mission, you have sharing intelligence, uh, supply, supply of weapons, training people. This is part of the war effort. So I think in this sense, 
we, NATO, NATO, we can take the pretense out of all of it. NATO, the West, is deeply involved in stopping Russia in Ukraine, and rightly so, and this also adds another level to this. Um, Tessa, there, there is some concern, or has been some concern, that Russia might consider this new UMAM thing uh, an intolerable um, escalatory affront. But are we past the point where we should still care what Russia thinks is escalating anything? Because Russia is in the position where it can decide whatever it likes is escalating something. If Russia is going to do something, it will always uh, retrofit an excuse for it. I think you're right in this, but so far there are some red lines that uh, NATO and EU states have not crossed. So there's no activity on Russian soil, mm. military or otherwise going on now. Um, and um, and so training soldiers in the EU, or as it happens already for the longest time here in the UK, Ukrainian soldiers, um, I think it's it's very uh, necessary and also part of what Europe should be doing in order to help and equip the Ukrainian government and its army to defend itself. They are defending itself from an aggression on their own country. So I think that's a question where, where whatever the Russian propaganda will make out of it and they will always try. But at the moment they're really on the back foot because nothing that Putin did so far in this war really worked. Most of the action backfired like the mobilization now of his soldiers doesn't look like a big success but if you look how many people have left the country up to 700,000 have run away. He says he has mobilized 220,000 soldiers of which half don't have a sleeping bag or ammunition to shoot with and also no training. So I think we are going now into a very critical phase of this um, war and this tough, tough, cold winter. And it's quite important to see that the pressure that, you, that the European states and also NATO can keep up on, 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 on the Russian regime is really strong because that's the decisive thing. If we are clear in what we don't let him do, then we might make him actually lose the war in the long term. You know, it's unfortunately not a quick fix thing. And just finally on this, uh, Yossi, and on the subject of that cold and difficult winter which may be bearing down upon us, um, do you think that European governments generally have been as upfront as they need to be with their publics about, well, one, how cold and difficult this could get, and two, why it's cold and difficult and why it's important that we put up with it? Yeah, this is a Churchillian moment. Mm. And and I think instead we are afraid to... to communicates difficult news. Yeah, the winter, luckily so far, at least here, it's not that cold, but it will get colder and it might get tougher and we need to find ways to protect, especially the vulnerable. But this is the time to mobilize society because there is a there is an aim. There is a clear objective. It's, you know, different from, you know, don't do it because people are making a lot of profits. They will make anyway. But because there is an objective, an international one, to stop Putin, to stop oppression, to stop this type of regimes from spreading into Europe. I think people are smart enough and committed enough to understand, yes, we might have a year or two that are not as good as used to be. But again, we'll come to this. You need a churchy-like leadership, which probably missing a little bit at, 
the moment. Uh, Yossi and Tessa, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you both later in the show, but sticking with Ukraine, as Yossi just cunningly hinted, the last eight months or so have seen Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, transformed in the general consciousness from an and-finally item about the comedian who became president to a subject of global fascination. Few more intimate portraits of him are available than a new book by Yulia Mendel, who served as President Zelensky's press secretary for the first two years of his term. The book is called The Fight of Our Lives, My Time with Zelensky, Ukraine's Battle for Democracy and What It Means for the World. Yulia joined me from Kiev earlier. I began by asking about how she had seen Zelensky changed by the presidency. It's actually very interesting to talk about the transformation of Volodymyr Zelensky. In my book, The Fight of Our Lives, I'm explaining how he um, transformed from a comedian to a statesman and from a statesman into a leader of a country in war. In fact, um, he was always underestimated for the reason that his image of a comedian was the most popular one. But people often forget that he is a lawyer by education and that that he has done enormously difficult thing to build. He built a big business in Ukraine, in post-Soviet country, when Russia was trying to penetrate information space, entertainment space, and every sphere of Ukraine's uh, today's life. And when I was working for President Zelensky, I understood that his image of a comedian was pretty far of his personality. And uh, he was traveling to Donbass, where Russia uh, had been uh, conducting military um, military uh, uh, battles, uh, activities for the last eight years, uh, almost every month. And I was traveling with him. And I saw many situations that I describe in my book, The Fight of Our Lives, how he was going to the front line just to handshake with the soldiers and how he was not even afraid to go to the zones of shelling, putting his life under risk, even if his personal security was against this, because he was always saying that as a leader, he did not lead to live in the moment of, um, in the most dangerous moment. He needed to spend the most dangerous moments with his soldiers. So for me personally, when I saw that he stayed in Kiev when his life was under threat, I was not surprised. I knew he is the kind of leader who will stand with his people to the very end. When you work with him up close and see him operating a government, how would you characterize his management style? Is it all led by him or is he actually quite a good delegator? That's an interesting question. Uh, yes, I, I really talk a lot about reforms and the plans of President Zelensky uh, during his uh, uh, cadency. Uh, but um, in fact, uh, I would say that he tries to uh, rule in many ways by himself. Um, but there, are, there were so many challenges in his uh, uh, presidency, um, as I don't think that any leader would like to have. Uh, let me say when he was only like three or four months uh, into power, he had this huge geopolitical scandal with Donald Trump and with actually the, the um, aid from the United States that was going straight to Ukrainian army. Then we had coronavirus. We had the change of the government. We had uh, the Ukrainian uh, uh, plane uh, hit by Iranian uh, missile. Uh, and then we had regional elections and war. So, I mean, there were so many challenges for any leader. So it didn't make uh, a lot of sense if a person was from politics or he was from different sphere. 
nobody would ever want to hold the country to leave the country during such uh, challenges. Uh, that's why the solutions for the challenges needed to be flexible and creative. And in many ways, the government of Ukraine was uh, actually coming uh, to see the strategy and was asking to, to lead during these challenges. Um, that's why, I guess, um, in the country of weak institutions, um, he was uh, taking uh, this responsibility for leadership uh, during the most difficult times. The chapter on him dealing with COVID-19 is especially interesting in light of what followed because that gives us some insight, I guess, into how President Zelensky responds to a crisis. Um, What was your sense of how well equipped he was temperamentally to deal with something as disruptive and unexpected as that? Absolutely. I think it was a huge uh, challenge for every leader around the world. And we saw that the countries with much better developed uh, healthcare infrastructure were doing bad because a pandemic was really a bad and big surprise for everyone. Uh, Actually, uh, President Zelensky changed the government because the previous government was not prepared to pandemic at all and could not even find any kind of solution. But I'm describing in my book that President Zelensky was was gathering uh, the government and the people who were ruling in different uh, spheres connected uh, to the pandemic uh, to actually... Uh, uh, be on the same page with uh, every part of the government of Ukraine to understand how the situation was moving and actually offering different solutions. He definitely played the leader in role in uh, um, in battling uh, the coronavirus uh, pandemic, uh, and uh, that's why he was always uh, that's why he was always very active, very flexible and very creative in coming up with the solutions. He has obviously since February 24th become the subject of considerable international fascination. You therefore have an unusual uh, and privileged position as somebody who came to know him quite well and quite personally. Away from being president, away from leading the country, what sense did you get of him as just as a human being? What sense did you get of what drives him? Well, um, he always was saying that he wanted to stay a human being in politics, and he always was saying that this is a very challenging um, plan. At the same time, I must say that he is super hardworking, and during crisis, he works 24 per 7, and that's why he drinks enormous cups of coffee. Um, He uh, um, really wakes up very early. He's an early bird, and he starts his days like at 6 or 7 a.m., and uh, starts from calling to different people from the office of the president to learn the information, to understand if there are challenges or if we have the response for the challenges. He can call the ministers or the parliamentarians like at 7, 7.30 a.m., figuring out what's the plan, what's the challenge, and to try to find different angles on the same um, on the same. Uh, problem. At the same time, he used to be uh, very addicted to sports. Uh, he used to start his day with the sports, even if we were traveling, let's say, to Donbass zone around Ukraine or globally. He started his day with jogging or going to the gym, uh, trying always to find energy uh, in sports for his uh, hard work as a president.
That was Yulia Mendel, former press secretary to President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine. Uh, Her new book, The Fight of Our Lives, which is terrific, is available now. And let's now on the daily look at the politics of the United Kingdom. Customary short pause while listeners assume the necessary position to facilitate mournful rocking back and forth to a soundtrack of demented cackling. The latest new Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, issued an emergency statement this morning in which he announced the more or less complete bin of the mini-budget of his predecessor, Kwasi Kwarteng. This afternoon, the Prime Minister, as of this broadcast, Liz Truss, claimed to be too busy to answer an urgent question from the opposition, but was not too busy shortly afterwards to sit behind Hunt during a second statement by the Chancellor. Truss said nothing at all and blinked a great deal, possibly signalling to an extraction team. Um, before we plough on with this properly, Yossi, there is a rare chance here for an Israeli to make fun of someone else's political chaos, so have at it. It feels like a holiday. (laughs) (laughs) You know, mind you, the election in Israel is two weeks, so this holiday is short. Well, I just say, enjoy enjoy it while you can. I I know, and it's almost kind of anticlimactic to talk after Zelensky to talk about Listras and, you know, kind of what, what, what do you, what do you there, say? There's, there's something of a gulf, isn't there? Yeah, a major one. Just mm. imagine you have to fight a war with Liz Truss as the Prime Minister. Not not so sure this is going to work very well. It's, I mean, it, I, it could I, happen. Portugal could decide to strike while Britain is weak. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it's more likely that Liz Truss will be out of a job before this is going to happen, and, and probably rightly so. I, I don't think, you know, all three of us probably will been following politics for quite a while, mm. and I don't think we can think about a single case of a new prime minister shooting herself in this case, not in the foot, but straight in the head, within 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 days. Yeah. And and doing everything wrong on you know, whatever she, you got. She, yeah, she has been Prime Minister, I think, what, five weeks and the yeah. first two or three of those don't really count because, because that was all Queen's funeral and mourning. So So within within two, three weeks, basically within a week, everything collapsed. And and a budget that makes no sense. The appointment that you decide I'm now almost a dictator. I'm 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 the queen now. I mean, not in a constitutional <laughs> monarchy, but in the dictatorship. I point only my friends, and I forget that most of the members of parliament didn't vote for me. They really don't like me because probably they knew me, so they didn't want to vote for me. It's actually the party that voted mm. for her, which might sound more democratic, but in hindsight, probably the MPs knew a lot of what the rest of us didn't know about Liz Truss. So she made really kind of. Novice's mistakes, she's not that experienced in politics, but she's not that inexperienced. She's been 12 years in parliament. She's been in some position. Why would she do all this mistake? Is it arrogance? Is it incompetence? What is it that brings someone to make all of it and leave us basically uh, 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 to pick up the bill? Just what we say about reversing everything. Interestingly enough, we haven't heard from Jeremy Hunt removing that, you know, but also remove the cap on bonuses for bankers. He said he would keep it. And this is mm. what he, he, cap- keep, he keeps the policy in place. So exactly. there will be. That's about the only thing he is keeping. Yeah. That's so, the only th- thing so meaning the most important people in this country are the bankers. Well, and it's certainly <laughs> something where he says they bring more taxes in. So it's a, he, he presents it as a number game. But if you remember the financial crisis and its aftermath, where we all thought like maybe we should rein in this this incredible like insane power that bankers have in 
getting profits mm-hmm. as the only idea that that makes sense to them uh, a little bit it's really we are in a very very drastic situation where people pick uh, policies apart and just think they can do whatever they just feel on the on the morning and then on the morning after when somebody else comes in i mean it's really has become so incredibly unstable this government i i cannot imagine that this goes on for a long time no, it's only 2000 so it's also in 2008 that basically the government nationalized the banks it's 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 not that long ago it's not that long time ago and all of a sudden again the same big feast of bankers they're the one that need to earn more than anyone else is is coming back so everything else we might pay 4000 plus pounds for energy everything else is going but not we we all should have gone into that really shouldn't we um, yeah, it's t- t- tessa what what did you make of the optics of today though because it was bizarre we saw an emergency statement by the chancellor this morning uh, then we saw an urgent question to the prime minister lodged by the opposition we saw the prime minister not turning up to answer it and we were told that she had been detained by urgent business which prompted guffaws around the house of commons and indeed i suspect around the country we had penny mordaunt a previous candidate uh, for the leadership of the party giving that statement instead. We then had another statement by the Chancellor at which the Prime Minister did appear and sat behind him in the Commons saying nothing at all but blinking a weird amount. Um, it's, it's all quite strange, isn't it? Do you see any way back for her at all? Well, I think it's always a lot worse than what we as observers think is. You, you think it's happening. even worse than it looks? It absolutely wow. is worse than it looks. I mean, people are calling, you know, sending letters uh, for, to the 1922 committee to replace her urgently. Um, the problem for all of this is that they don't have a real solution. You know, they cannot have another uh, so not democratic leadership election than they had now where they put the prime minister in Downing Street that was elected by only 81,000 people. Um, and the don't, last don't the, thing... The don't MPs, the Germans have a word for, like, not having to move, but everything you can possibly do is just going to make things even worse than they already are? What? Sepsmod? Something like that. <laughs> oh, that doesn't doesn't sound basically. like doesn't sound like it's got enough syllables. But let's <laughs> no, go with I'm it. I'm really sorry. I don't know what you're talking about. But you know, the the last thing that the MPs, the Tory MPs, want, of course, is another leadership election where another far right Brexit sect member is being elected to Downing Street while they are looking for someone more moderate. So all this plotting that Rishi Sunak comes back might be. Um, the way for them to survive another few months. But whoever comes in will lose elections now to the Labour Party who just sits and watches this and with a relatively moderate and uh, organized front bench on the opposition side that might be the easiest way out. But of course, that's not what the Tories want. So we, we see this chaos info- of unfolding. And Liz Trust today, to me, really looked as if um, she was close to a complete nervous breakdown the way she sat there with a grin on her face it was not looking healthy and you know personally you always feel god what stress people um take on just to fulfill their career 
uh, <laughs> dreams. It's just amazing. I mean, it's inhuman what's going on now in this at this moment in in but, politics in well, the UK. Just a final note on this before we move on. For what it may be worth, one poll today by Redfield Wilton gave Labour a 36-point lead, uh, which applied to a general election would give not only would it give Labour 515 seats, uh, the Conservatives would not even be the opposition. It would be either the Liberal Democrats or the Scottish National Party uh, would become the second biggest party. Um, But finally, on today's show, uh, for reasons we were just discussing, the UK is presently harder to understand than usual. At least one foreign legation based in London believes it might have found a way to crack British codes, however. Staff at the US Embassy have been told to watch Gogglebox, the Channel 4 programme via which viewers watch viewers watching television. It is believed that this will furnish insight into the psyche of ordinary Britons, or at least those ordinary Britons who are also compulsive attention seekers who fancy being on television but cannot be bothered getting off their sofas. For the uninitiated, here is a taste. You are her favourite child. I went on TikTok the other day, she didn't even follow me. And she, <laughs> listen, listen, she followed you, right? She followed you. <laughs> no, but she went, she went, I, I thought I had to follow people. <laughs> oh, and, then, and then she went, I don't know how to like things. I went on yours, all of them had been liked. But none of mine had. I know, I know. Quite a curly-whirly route, though, isn't it? And some, I mean, Twixed and turned all the way. Exactly. I, I'm wondering when they're going home on that double-decker, whether they'll think that through again. They nearly fudged it up. They didn't, they? Uh, uh, the thing is, they were strong. They weren't flaky. Marathon men, I <laughs> Time to end the disastrous democratic experiment, etc. D- d- does anybody here at this table want to admit to watching Gogglebox? Well, again, I'm going to do something completely unfair because I didn't watch it until my daughter told me, Dad, you must watch it. <laughs> it's funny. I survived 10 minutes of it of that, and, and gave it up not to watch it ever again. Um, Tessa, are you a big Gogglebox fan? I have to admit I'm neither, but I feel also that as an Austrian-German person, I'm not entitled to make fun of anybody's <laughs> sense of humour since we haven't done that all. <laughs> well, we, we did want to talk about that, though, because we are all here sitting around this table, foreigners in this country, and what would, you, what would either of you recommend, if not Gogglebox, as a way of understanding the British and specifically the British sense of humour and the British sensibility generally? Well, as it happens, I'm sorry, Yossi. No, please. As it happens, I went to a British comedy last week, which I can only highly recommend to all of you Mm -hmm. who want to study why also the the English sense of humor is so incredibly funny now. And also in all its uh, sort of, you know, in in what we learned from Monty Python or uh, The Private Eye. And this is because of a man called Spike Milligan. And there's Mm -hmm. a new play about him. He sort of was a a comedian who was really severely traumatized by the Second World War experience on the front line. And unfortunately, he wasn't treated for it. So he was also a very sad man. But he was incredibly funny. And he produced for the BBC a radio show called The Goon Show, Mm -hmm. which was a legendary thing for everyone who grew up in this country in this period. Um, And I did know nothing about this and was really, really very well entertained and also learned a lot about this, how influential Spike Milligan was 
um, for 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 all the comedians who came after him. And it's written by Ian Hislop, who is a wonderfully funny man in any case. And so that's the way I think to get into more understanding. If we if you don't understand British humor in the first place, which I think is relatively easy to understand it's self-deprecating it's ironic and it's it's really really funny because it's not usually not making fun of people uh, down the the ladder but rather up the ladder so or, that's, or a, that's a, a, a bit in both ways although I, I would myself recommend certainly Spike Milligan's war memoirs as a, a an absolutely fantastic insight into the the British sensibility and British sense of humor they are very very funny but with with British comedy which I grew up on in Australia because Australian channels are full of it because obviously it's it's cheaper than making our own um the, the, I, I always thought it was funny but there was a dimension of it I didn't really understand till I moved here which is and this was a British friend who pointed out to me that he just said that all British sitcoms are basically the same program and they're all about class because the character at the centre of it hates in both directions. So he thinks the people above him are incompetent and he thinks the people beneath him are contemptuous. And once you start seeing British sitcoms like that, then you realise, yes, Basil Fawlty, Alan Partridge, Edmund Blackadder, uh, Captain Mannering, they're all basically the same person. It's just the, the, the <laughs> sit part of the sitcom changes. Um, Yossi, what, what would you recommend? Okay, for instance... Again, also growing up in faraway country. You know, we actually watch Monty Python and they're only fools and horses. Mm. And, you know, a lot of this. And it, you see, I see what you say, but, but there is different also in terms of class, of, of, of the sense of humor. I think there is also commona commonality with the self-deprecation with Jewish sense of humor. Mm -hmm. I think more the one that you Absolutely. find in, in, in New York with the stand-up comedians in New York more than in Israel itself. Or, or you go into some of the sense of humor in, in East Europe before, you know, in the 19th, 20th century. So actually it was relatively easy to go into the self-deprecation sense of humor because it's very similar. The only difference, usually here, I think it changes here, it's more subtle in the British one. That, for instance, if you go to stand-up mm. comedy in New York, obviously. So I, I, I think there are so many of them along the years that helps to understand the British society. And again, all the only fools and horses, for instance, really give you the kind of the, the class thing. And this time next year will be all million. <laughs> <laughs> but we won't. But, but Del, Del Boy Trotter is another case in point. He thinks both those above him yeah. and beneath him are exactly. bunglers and incompetents. And he, he doesn't really understand why he is marooned at his own position. And and that's and that's what it makes it it's funny and the kind of and I think what's the, the British comedy is great is really the dialogues, mm. the great dialogues in a, in a way that a lot of others don't do that again. So you're, you're suggesting that that clip we heard of Gogglebox is not the absolute pinnacle <laughs> uh, of British dialogue construction. In in my own subtle way, that's what I try to say. Uh, I, I, my, my other tip would be, and this is shamelessly stolen from uh, another fairly regular Daily Panelist, Justin Quirk, that at the in his contention, and I believe he's right, that part of the British the British citizenship ceremony, easy for me to say, uh, should be a presentation of the complete collection of Viz Comic annuals, and just be told plough through that, you'll pretty much get the idea. Uh, that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. The new Viz Annual is just out. In fact, it's that it's it's one of the redeeming highlights of Christmas. Uh, thanks to our panellists today, Tessa Shishkovitz and Yossi Meckelberg, also to Ilya Mendel. Today's show was produced by Tom Webb and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nichol. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.